Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to This Show Is All About You, a show about all the ways in which you and me become we and what that means for all of us. As always, I am your host, JDK Winnikin. You can find out more about me at wordsbyjdk.com and on my social media feeds at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up JDK Winnikin and you'll you'll get that. Uh Welcome to uh, episode 10 of this show for March 15th, 2021. And today, I am going to be putting on my historian's hat. We were talking about resilience this month, and uh, I started off the month kind of talking about it on a philosophical sense, almost a spiritual sense, uh, parsing words kind of sense. Then last week when Tawny Santabria, an expert on resilience, was in, we talked about the science of it and the practice of it, uh, how we can develop it uh, through awareness and presence. And so this week, we're going to talk about it a bit historically. And uh, it's obviously very broad. And so for the the small amount of time that we have today, I'm going to be very specific. Uh, And in particular, if I'm going to put on my historian's hat to talk about an example of historical resilience, then I should probably get a good lay of the land of what's going on in the history world. And March is Women's History Month. And so it makes sense, I think, for me to talk about um, a story or some stories of uh, women in history who have shown resilience. Now, um, I think it goes without saying that uh, the women who are well-known in history are well-known not just in spite of their resilience, but primarily because they've had it. Because so many women are known in history for needing to be resilient. Oftentimes they are the people who are the great pioneers in in industry or in politics, uh, oftentimes they have had to show resilience in order to gain uh, their freedoms under the law, their rights under the law that uh, that men have had for a long time. And so I really could pick anybody is really what it came down to. But I decided to, with Women's History Month, to talk about someone who's in an area of my life where I have a lot of interest, and that's aviation uh, and aerospace. I, over the weekend... Uh, I wrote a piece on my uh, on my website, wordsbyjdk.com, uh, that addressed this, that talked about women in aviation historically. And I'm going to pick up where uh, where I left off with that and talk a little bit about that. So t- in light of that, today's show is titled, She's All Right in the Left Seat. The left seat being, of course, the captain's chair in the cockpit. She's all right in the left seat. And the haiku to frame today's discussion, I always start with a haiku, goes like this. She's now unbroken because finally she found she was her own glue. She's now unbroken because finally she found she was her own glue. And I'll explain how all that fits together here as we go. And so with my historian's hat on, let's talk a little bit about uh, women in aviation. And one of the things I've found is, and I talked a little bit about this in my post, is if you go and do a quick Google search and you look for the top female pilots of all time, you'll find a lot of top 10 lists, a lot of them uh, very detailed with a lot of great information. And you'll see that a lot of them are the same names. Amelia Earhart, for example, is always on that list. And there's others that you will see there, any of whom I could talk about in regards to resilience, including um, Amelia, women like Bessie Coleman, or Jacqueline Oriol, or Amy Johnson, or Harriet Quimby, or Nancy Harkness Love, Valentina Tereshkova, the first woman in space, 
Sally Ride, the first American woman in space. These are all names that some of which you might know, uh, but in terms of their accomplishments, they're on par with the names of people, men, who you do know. Names like the Wright Brothers, Eddie Rickenbacker, Charles Lindbergh, Jimmy Doolittle, Chuck Yeager, Yuri Gagarin, Neil Armstrong. So if you put those two lists side by side and you know more from that second list than you do from that first list, there's a reason for that. <laughs> uh, the field of women's history really began to fully develop in the 1970s in this country as part of the larger historical discipline, a big explosion of what is known as social history. And so a lot of these stories that had existed for a long time weren't really studied in depth by professional historians until the 70s in the midst of the, the women's rights movement, where a lot of this came, to, a lot of this happened. And so, so while certainly in the last 50 years, these stories are more well-known, they haven't necessarily taken on as widespread awareness as obviously those, those male names. And it's understandable. There's very, very big names in that second list. But in that first list, the name that I haven't mentioned is the one that I'm going to talk a little bit about today. And that is a woman named Jackie Cochran. And... To me, Jackie Cochran uh, epitomizes resilience uh, in part because she epitomizes so much of what it means to be human. And I'm just going to really quickly uh, go over her, uh, her biography, a uh, quick recap of hers, because I talked about it a lot over the weekend. And then I want to broaden things out a little bit more. Uh, she was born in 1906 in Florida, and she was uneducated for the uh, majority of her life, grew up in a lot of hardship, had to work her way up to self-sufficiency uh, through a lot of labor-heavy jobs. And later in her life, this was such a, a sticking point for her that she actively tried to rewrite uh, this part of her history. And But she definitely worked her way to self-sufficiency because eventually she started her own cosmetics company, Jacqueline Cochran Cosmetics, which remained competitive with all the big names in women's, co uh, women's cosmetics until her death in 1980. And it was a very major part of her life. And that helped her in the 19, 1920s and early 30s begin to enter the circles of sort of the high society circles of business, of entertainment, uh, and eventually of politics. And she was encouraged to perhaps look into flying. Flying, of course, still relatively new in the 1920s, late 1920s into the 30s. She was encouraged to go into flying to differentiate herself from her competitors in the cosmetics world. And so she decided to learn it. And not only did she fall in love with it right away, but you ask anybody who remembers it, and she was a natural at it, almost from the very beginning. Talk about being all right in the left seat. And so because of that, it, all of it fit with her strong personality and her daring, and she began to really push the envelope in terms of what women were expected to be doing, not just in aviation, but in the world at large. The cockpit gave her total control and freedom in her own mind, and she ran with it. So she got involved not just to differentiate herself from her competition in cosmetics, but then she started getting even more daring. She entered the racing circuit. She started flying in air races, which back in the early 1930s were covered as widely as auto races are today, for example. Uh, it's hard to imagine now, right? You don't see uh, air races usually making it onto Sports Center where, like you do with auto races. But it was huge back then. 
1934, she became the first woman to win the famous Bendix Air Race, which was known as one of the most challenging. And she beat some pretty big names, a guy named Jimmy Doolittle, who would become a hero in the Second World War. She beat him in that race. And after that, he called her one of the most skilled and fearless pilots alive at the time. And she did it flying the GB. The GB was a notoriously dangerous airplane. You can look it up, G-E-E-B-E-E. And the way I would describe it is this. If you were driving a Lamborghini on a one-lane mountain road along a cliff, imagine you were doing that, but the Lamborghini wouldn't let you go less than 75 miles an hour. If you can imagine that, and if you could drive that road successfully, you might have an idea of what it was like driving the, flying the GB. But she managed to win it that way. And so her name began to get bigger in various circles. And she strongly believed from a very early period that women could do anything that men could, particularly in the airplane. And as war approached, she became a very, very strong advocate for women flying the same types of missions that men would be asked to fly, particularly combat missions. But of course, the military at the time in the United States would not allow for that. And so it would take a while, as a matter of fact. Uh, women could not fly in any kind of active military service until the 1970s, and they couldn't begin combat flying until 1993, flying in combat missions. And it's only been since 2013 that women have been allowed to fight in combat in all military branches. So keep that in mind. So despite her advocacy, in 1940-41, as the United States was getting closer and closer to uh, entering the Second World War, Cochran took a bit of a shift and decided to build on what was available for her. And she advocated training women to fly who could then ferry aircraft from the United States from where they were manufactured, that could test them um, and then fly them both in uh, training missions, but then also fly them overseas to combat zones. And eventually they would do that extensively. And what this would do is it would free up men to fly combat missions. It was the part of the same push that would happen in the United States that as men enlisted uh, to go fight in combat, women increasingly took over industrial jobs to build all the equipment from bullets to airplanes that was required to fight the war. And so this was going to be a part of that. And ultimately, what this would result in, it was the creation of what is known as the Women Air Service Pilots, or the WASP. Not WASPs, WASP. <laughs> Got to make sure that's clear. Uh, and so she put this together. Over 1,100 women would participate in this program from 1941 to 1944, and 38 of them would die in service. However, because the WASP was not recognized as a military operation, uh, they were not given military assistance. So any woman who died uh, in the WASP, the uh, expenses for her funeral, for moving her body back from where it happened, uh, fell upon the WASP themselves. And, in fact, they didn't get that military recognition until the 1970s and those retroactive benefits until the 1970s. In that same period I mentioned at the top of the show, when these stories were starting to be told by historians and making it into the public consciousness. Now, the reason why the WASP is so, is so interesting, this is where we're going to branch a little bit more into this resilience story. It's because when you really look at it, what these women, these 1,100 women were asked to do, was insane <laughs> and part incredibly difficult. So they did things like, for example, they would test planes right after they came out of the factory. By 1943, uh, American production was producing a combat aircraft every minute. And so those planes had to be tested 
And because a lot of men were off fighting, it was falling to women to test each one of these individual planes. So if there was any flaw in that aircraft coming off the assembly line, it was going to be a woman pilot flying it that might discover it and hopefully get it repaired, or it might bring the plane down. Other things they did, they towed decoys behind planes so that male pilots training for combat missions could shoot at those decoys with live ammunition, which was essentially these women pilots were flying themselves into live, live ammunition combat exercises. And then, of course, they had to do the big ferry runs from the United States, particularly to Europe, but they also did some of this in the Pacific. And what this meant was, rather than having male pilots fly planes from the United States over to Europe, the WASP did this instead. And so what they would do is they would fly this ferry run over the North Atlantic okay, from North America to Europe, stopping along the way. And this happens to be one of the most unforgiving environments in the world for flying. Once you get past the major cities of Canada, there's not a lot on the way from there across the rest of North America, across the top of the North Atlantic, down to uh, Iceland and England, than a lot of open, desolate territory, not a whole lot of places uh, to land and survive, only a few airfields, a lot of those airfields incredibly dangerous to land in. One in particular in Greenland that uh, was a vital stop. If you didn't get it right coming in, you weren't going to get out because you were landing between two cliffs with another cliff at the end of the runway. So you had to get it right the first time. Yeah. So thousands of miles over this. Now the weather in the North Atlantic can be brutal. Not only can there be tons of fog any time of year, but that can be icy fog. You're flying at only around 10,000 feet, and so you're in the midst of all the turbulence that's involved in that. If you go into the water in the North Atlantic, you will make it about 60 seconds before you die of hypothermia. And, of course, as you got closer to the combat zones, these planes are being ferried over. They are unarmed. So if an enemy aircraft happens upon them, then it's skillful flying <laughs> and a little bit of luck uh, to make sure you could get out of that alive. There were no visual reference points okay, for the most part on these flights. And what's remarkable about this, when you think about it, is when we talk about 38 women dying, and a lot of them died mostly you know, a lot in training accidents or moving them around the United States. When you consider how many of these flights were made, which is in the tens of thousands, the fact that only 38 women died only okay, in the midst of war, that's a very, very small number, means they were really, really good at it. To give you a sense of scale, 15,000 B-17 Flying Fortress bombers, many of them built where I am here in Seattle, over 15,000 of them were made for the Second World War. The majority of them served in the European theater, which meant the majority of 15,000 Flying Fortress bombers were flown to Europe by the WASP. And that's just one aircraft. That doesn't include the P-51 Mustang fighter. That doesn't include the B-24 Liberator heavy bomber. That doesn't include the B-26 Marauder medium bomber. It doesn't include any of these. Jackie Cochran, in fact, was such a good pilot and such a great leader of the WASP that she made sure that she flew every single American combat aircraft and all of its variants by the end of the war. So she tested them alongside the pilots under her care. And so, so many others of these women also flew all of these variants so that by the end of the war, you could claim, unlike their male counterparts who were trained on specific aircraft to fly into combat missions, the women in the WASP were some of the most complete pilots alive. 
And by the time the program was closed down in 1944, it was primarily because enough planes had been delivered to the theater of combat in both the Pacific and the Atlantic, or the, uh, the European theater, that their services weren't really needed anymore. And of course, being excited about the possibility of what this could mean, Cochrane and others became strong advocates for after the war that when the new United States Air Force was created, that it would be a co-equal Air Force where women would be allowed to fly combat missions and would be able to do so because they had proven themselves um, in a vital part of the war. That did not happen, despite the fact that uh, Jackie Cochran pushed hard for it. In fact, there's a picture of her standing next to a P-51 Mustang that she'd flown where she painted on the side where there's normally nose art, we want a co-equal Air Force. <laughs> despite that, uh, that did not happen, as I mentioned earlier. And of course, for women throughout the World War II effort uh, in the United States, the same thing happened. And when we come back from a really short break, I'll tell you a little bit more about that, and we'll kind of tie this into resilience. So we'll be right back on this show is all about you. Feelings of disconnect are the cause of an ever-surging mental health crisis. Many of us feel apathetic about ourselves, our work, home, and relationships. We don't know how to re-engage. I'm Greg Kuyper of Kuyper Counseling. At the Root focuses on emotional connection and how awareness is at the root of building healthy relationships with self and others. Join me weekly to re-engage with both. At the Root airs Mondays at 3.30 p.m. here on KKNW. Subscribe to the podcast or go to Kuyper Counseling. This is Rob Bates, and I want you to tune in to Don't Ask Me to Talk with Stacey Howard. The show that brings joy from pain, sunshine where it rains. Don't Ask Me to Talk with Stacey Howard. And that's coming from me, Mr. It Takes Two, Rob Bates. Tune in. Do what Rob Bates says. Take a listen to Don't Ask Me to Talk with Stacey Heller. That's me. Tuesdays from 3 to 4 on KKNW. To find out more information, check out my website, stacyconnects.com, or text DA. MTT to 55678. Alternative Talk 1150, the talk of the sound. All right. Welcome back to this show is all about you. I am your host, JDK Winnikin. We are talking about resilience uh, again today. And, and at, before the break, I left off talking about the end of the Second World War and the role that Jackie Cochran and the WASP uh, had, had done in the war and the hopes of what this would mean uh, for women in the United States. And like other women in the United States who'd worked in uh, aircraft manufacturing or in any kind of manufacturing in the industry, uh, after the war, things changed, or at least there was the attempt to take everything back to the quote unquote, the way it was. And the numbers are pretty big when we think about this. And let's just focus on aviation since that's what I've been taking a look at here. Uh, by 1943, 31% uh, of Anyone working in aviation in the United States, 31% were women in 1943, and that was in all areas. Now, in aircraft industrial production, 65% of women were, 65% of workers were women in aircraft manufacturing factories. And so we are talking about a significant portion. And of course, these are all women who came from all different walks of life, all backgrounds all ethnicities, 
Many of them moved all the way across the country for jobs, and so they uprooted their entire lives for this. And they were exhorted by the Office of War Information uh, to certainly help their country out of patriotic duty, but they were also told not to change too much about themselves in the process, not to change their femininity, not to change what they looked like. And there were efforts made uh, to make sure that women's roles in society, they didn't get... Uh, they didn't get changed too much in the course of this. And the messaging was always the same, is that this was a temporary situation in the United States, and then when the war was over, everything would go, quote-unquote, back to normal. And from the outside looking in, it certainly looked that way. As GIs returned from overseas, they went back into many of those jobs, and a lot of those women, not all, but a lot of those women who had built aircraft, uh, I mean, think about it, you had women who... You had planes being built largely by women, flown largely by women to men to fly them in combat. When a lot of them went back home, things still weren't the same, despite the fact they might have looked like that on the outside. The Cold War framework for the United States was one of fear and anxiety. And in times of fear and anxiety, particularly in American history, what people tend to fall back on is this idealized version of the American family as the root basis for all morality, uh, all political identity, uh, and safety. And so this idea of women returning to being a good mother, a good wife, and a quiet one became expected. Problem was, you had literally millions of women who had had a series of experiences during the war that had shown them not only their own capabilities as a group of people, but individually, that they could pursue the things that they wanted to do that they could live a life that looked differently than what was expected. And once those things happen to anyone, women or men, those things tend not to be dislodged so easily. <laughs> that type of discovery is an important part of being human. And when then faced with efforts to prevent that from happening again, that type of resilience leads to unexpected consequences. And over time, what historians have identified since the 1970s is that really it's the American women's wartime experience that helped lead over the course of a generation and a half, eventually to the women's rights movement, and also parts of the civil rights movement, in which women were heavily involved. And so this idea that women had been given more freedoms during the war, there had been attempts to push them back from those freedoms, they then embarked on collectively a generational push to change how people perceived them with their abilities, their rights, you name it. And it was in the 1970s that a number of things began to change, and these were things that I honestly didn't know uh, until just a handful of years ago, that it was in the 1970s, and the big push for all of this, that women for the first time could get their own credit cards. Before that, if they wanted credit cards, they had to have their husband sign off on it, and if you were a single woman, you were sort of out of luck. You could secure home loans. Women could secure home loans in the 1970s for the first time. Finally, nationally, they could serve on juries. Some states had allowed that before, but it became a national law in the 70s. It was in the 1970s where women could first buy running shoes designed specifically for them. And it was also in the 1970s where women were first allowed to run the Boston Marathon. It wasn't until the 1970s that women were allowed to keep their job if they became pregnant or attend a military academy, or, and this surprised me a lot, practice law. 
all things is simply now. Now, for the most part, I think generally speaking, people assume it was never that, but it was. But we're coming up on 50 years now since all of that happened. And of course, a lot of the significant discrepancies that still exist for women and the significant discrimination that women face in this country and around the world is still there 50 years after that. And in light of a lot of things that have been going on recently, particularly going on over in England this weekend, it seems that resilience is still required for women and for anyone who supports gender equality. In aviation today, we still see the same thing. The ratio of women pilots in commercial aviation today, the ratio is the same as it was in the early 1980s. The highest rate among American carriers for women pilots is 7.4%. The largest of all airlines around the world is 11.2%. So while there are more women pilots by number in the world, that's only because the aviation industry has exploded in the last 50 years. The ratios are still the same. And so, despite everything I've talked about, despite all these, all these different lessons from history, uh, women are still individually, collectively, with all the disagreements and differences of opinion that exist within that, still pursuing the types of rights that many others have had for a very long time. That is enduring, it's persevering, but it's also growing and changing, and that is resilience. As I've been talking about this month, resilience is not just getting through something. It's working through something and changing and growing and building. And collectively, what women in the United States have had to do is not only do all those things, but also imagine what something could, imagine something could be different and then to pursue that. We've had to advocate forward, build new boundaries on both a personal and a societal level. So there's a lot to that. And certainly we can talk more about it if you uh, look me up on my social media feeds and check out wordsbyjdk.com. And next week uh, on the show, we're going to have another special episode. My guest will be Tennyson Jacobson. Tennyson is the host of a podcast called Common Ground, the podcast. And back in 2013 on Mother's Day, uh, she and her family were a victim of a home invasion. And this podcast is about not just what happened there, and it's a remarkable story, but what she's done ever since. It is one of the best stories of resilience you could ever hear. And if you want to get a good uh, dose of it, make sure you check out Common Ground, the podcast. But then you can come on this show next week, and then we'll be doing a Facebook Live uh, at 4 o'clock Pacific time where we'll continue that conversation. So that's next time on This Show is All About You. I am your host, J.D.K. Winnikin. Thanks for sticking around. And until next week, chins up, everyone.